Welcome to Latinos Who Tech. My name is Hugo Castellanos. I'm an engineer and I work in Silicon Valley. I am originally from Caracas, Venezuela, and I've been calling the U.S. home for the last 20 years. When it comes to Latinos in the U.S., we are 60 million people, but we're only 3% of the workers in science or engineering. As a professional in Silicon Valley, I've had the opportunity to meet some remarkable professionals that work in the tech industry, Latinos like me. With this podcast, I want to bring you a collection of their stories and how they got a job in tech in the first place. And if they had to start all over again, what would they do differently? I want to share with you career advice on how to get a job in tech, how to deal with imposter syndrome, how to find your tribe when you're the only one in the room. This is Latinos Who Tech. Amir, welcome to Latinos Who Tech. Thank you for making the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I'm definitely excited to share my experiences. I hope that it's useful for everyone listening. I was wondering, can you tell me about yourself? Can you tell me your story? How do you get to San Francisco? It's always tough when someone asks me where I'm from or kind of where I grew up because I've lived in a lot of different places. I was born and raised in New York, stayed in New York until I was around 10. I'm half Lebanese and half Puerto Rican. And at that point, my dad wanted us to kind of go to Lebanon and learn the culture and the language. So I um, went there and I spent seven years there. Then I came back and went to school in Miami. So uh, that's kind of home now. And so whenever I go home for the holidays or to visit family, like it's basically Miami, then I went to school there and then just kind of took opportunities as they came and lived in a lot of places in the US from New York to LA, and then kind of slowly made my way to San Francisco for work. And you're an industrial engineer. I am. I'm industrial engineer, bachelor's and master's. So why industrial out of all the engineering? What, what uh, caught your attention to it? So my father is a doctor. He's in the medical field. And I started off by being uh, pre-med. And then I realized as kind of I was in there that it just wasn't for me. So um, I started kind of feeling around, talking to some of my friends that were in engineering. Some of my friends are in mechanical. And there was a couple that were in industrial. And I found overall, like I drifted towards industrial because it was a little bit more spread out and kind of not that specialized, I would say. You could kind of like essentially do the degree and then you had to do kind of like a master's or a PhD in order to like really specialize in a specific field. So it was a little more general, a little bit more managerial as well. So that's kind of why I, I chose industrial. That makes a lot of sense because there's this saying that I remember from college and I still hear it now and then that engineers make things, industrial engineers make things better yep. or more optimized or more efficient. Do you feel that some of that operations management mentality of making things efficient goes a little bit into your personal life as well or how so yeah that's a good question i think i think it definitely does when i think about just operations and and industrial engineering and kind of just like my day-to-day -day managing large-scale operations there's a lot of kind of project management strategic planning and kind of risk mitigation mm -hmm. so what that really means is you know when someone kind of brings a problem. A lot of the time I'm trying to think of how to avoid any any potential risks. And so just start asking much deeper levels of questions and kind of, you know, trying to come up with solutions prior to them occurring. And so I find 
that in my personal life, whether it's with my family, like my brother or my wife, where they're like, oh, I'm going to do X. And then I'm like, oh, but you know, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? You know, what if they say this? <laughs> and everyone's like, hey, hold on a sec. I'm just going to do this. It's okay. We don't need to kind of like solve all of the like the little micro spinoffs that might happen. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I definitely see it kind of bleeding in and out. I hear you. I hear you because I feel that a lot of these skills that we learn here in tech, and especially being in the Bay Area, make it scalable, make it agile, all those things. Yeah. It definitely bleeds into my personal life as well. You know, so the whole idea of I'm going to make a roadmap of my year. And it's not only projects at work, it's projects at home too. Yeah. <laughs> so I have all the trips that I want to do in 2019 nice. already figured out. And then when I'm getting PTO and what time do I have to buy tickets and all those things. So it definitely there's something. And for you that you're listening to this, you know, if you are dating an engineer, yeah, <laughs> be ready for that. Because <laughs> we definitely it's, it's hard to turn that mind off. It's yeah, definitely. definitely. And a lot of things with engineers, I think, are just black or white. <laughs> when yeah. we kind of like live in the gray and most people who are not in engineering kind of have that gray zone a lot. So, yeah, I agree. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm a strong believer that you can learn something new from anyone you meet. That is why every month I compile all the key learnings from this podcasting experience and summarize them in my monthly newsletter. I curate the resources we talk about, key learnings, books I'm currently reading, and give you recommendations on how to become a better Latino professional. You can sign up following the show notes or at latinoswhotech.com. Thank you. So tell me a bit about GE. I mean, you spend a lot of time in GE. I guess hand in hand with that, you know, like why operations? So actually my first job out of college, I was at Accenture for two years in consulting. I totally see that, by the way. I yeah. totally see that. <laughs> like the way you carry yourself. Yeah, this guy has a consultant mentality wrapped yeah, around. That's funny. With Accenture, I think it was a great place for me to jumpstart my career. But a lot of the technology consulting... In terms of, of the actual type of work that was being done, it was very technical. I was, I was doing a lot of SQL, a lot of coding, just things that wasn't A, what I went to school for, and B, kind of like where my interests lied. So from there, I kind of went to GE and was able to get into their operations management leadership program. So a lot of the backgrounds going into that program were all the different types of engineering, whether it's electrical, mechanical, or industrial. And that's kind of why it sparked my interest. It's very operations focused in terms of project management, operations management, lean, Six Sigma, you know, just all the different skills that I felt you needed to have in your tool built to be a successful manager in the future. So I interviewed for the program, was lucky enough to get in. And at the time, GE owned Universal Studios. And so I had the option to choose between GE Aviation and, and Universal Studios. I didn't even know that they owned them. And then like <laughs> me coming in, they're like, hey, so which one do you want? And I thought, hey, should I make movies or aircraft engines? And I think that's when I was like, yep, I'm, I'm going to go to New York and LA and, and work on, on film and television. So, you know, I chose that path, uh, which is a lot more technical than any of the other GE areas and um, spent a couple of years there in, in the program. And, and you worked in the Olympics. What was that like? What were you doing for Universal? At Universal, the, the operations program is slightly different than at GE and a lot of the other GE businesses. Mm -hmm. So in GE, they have probably 20 to 100 OMLPs at any given time working in the actual shop or in the factory. Right. At Universal Studios, they only got an allotment usually for somewhere between two and five. And so the projects that we would work on were the most strategic in the company at the time, which was an amazing opportunity for it's us. Amazing. So quickly, when I joined, the 
first project that I worked on was the Olympics. So it was the Beijing Olympics and I was uh, managing the highlights factory. So any highlight that you would see of any sport would essentially pass through this factory. The process was, you know, the, the sports, let's say swimming would come. And this is, you know, when Michael Phelps was at his prime, we would cut, for example, we'd say, you know, he won two or three medals and then we'd cut like the top 10 clips that he'd have. So I'd get a request from the director and then we would kind of give it to what we called shot pickers. And there was kind of about 30 or 40 people just sitting in front of the computers waiting to kind of take a project. And so we had these mini projects where they would then kind of edit and put together these highlight clips mm-hmm. and then we would ship them off to all the different work streams. So whether it was web, whether it was mobile, whether it was through a specific carrier, any highlight basically for the entire Beijing Olympics passed through the factory. What was insane about that is that, so the Olympics is 16 days. And we didn't really have a set process going in. So it was a little broken in terms of how these highlights are going to get through. And then they were like, let's throw the operation, you know, managers on there. You know, we came in and then day one, we kind of like establish a process. We basically said, okay, you know, here's the, you know, seven steps to kind of cut a clip and, and kind of get it to whoever paid for the clip. Right. And then day by day, the process started evolving which was great. So then we started realizing, hey, the first day would take us like an hour to develop a clip. Then the next day was like 58 minutes, then like 55 minutes, then Mm, like 53 minutes. And so we started making day-to-day improvements. And that was one of the first times where I saw like hands-on what true kind of like lean and rigorous process improvement day by day can kind of do. And I think by the end of the Olympics, by like day 14 or so, it would take us about 20 minutes or under to just cut it to basically get a request, cut a clip and get it to the proper partner. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic. From a personal standpoint, how do you feel about being able to make decisions, you know, about the highlights and the whole process? I mean, how did that feel? That was amazing. I think just the level of trust that they instilled in us. So there was two of us out. We ran shifts. I did. We did two 12 hour shifts. I had the day shift and he had the night shift. And just the level of trust that they instilled in us was amazing, right? It was, it was crazy that early on in your career to be able to kind of, you know, have a project of that magnitude. So I think that was wonderful. And the people that we got to work with too, like we were working with veterans of the Olympics, you know, it was basically like head of sports. It was like, you know, really world-class directors that have been working on the Olympics, like their entire careers. So for me, it was like a phenomenal experience. It was, you know, it lasted about a month, but it was, it was a phenomenal experience. And this was the rotation program. I actually, I did a rotation program as well in the mm-hmm. sales and marketing side of, of, nice. of Intel. And I was wondering, how do you go about ramping up quickly? Do you have like a, a process you use? I'm sure you have like a checklist or some key things with that you do like the first 30 days in the job. How do you go about that? So the way that I ramp up, I think there's a couple things that I do initially. So if I'm coming onto a project and I'm not really that familiar with the area or need to familiarize myself quickly, one is um, like I always kind of like hit the books and just see, you know, what resources I have around there and just like, you know, pick up and, and read about some of these topics. Of course, now, like mainly I'll just do that on the web. So, you know, the web is also kind of a great, great resource. Just basically start Google everything any like industry magazines or journals and things like that, that I also kind of like skim through and then using the resources around me. So I think like usually a lot of people and me, like earlier on in my career, I'd go into a project and I didn't have like all the necessary information and I kind of like freak out. But the reality is like, there's usually a lot of people around you that have a lot of the different pieces that you need in order to put the puzzle together. So definitely taking the time to meet all of the people that I would be working with, whether it's on my team, whether it's cross-functional stakeholders and getting and collecting a lot of the information from there. So I think that's very, very key as well. 
And then for me, like the very like kind of like GE way is kind of just learning by doing and being on the shop floor. So a lot of the first kind of like month is for me establishing this baseline. So it's going in there. And if the job is around something in the call center space, you know, it's actually going in, listening to phone calls, talking to the agents, seeing what they're doing, seeing where the pain points are and really learning firsthand. And I think that's how I usually ramp up quickly. It's like a combination of those things. And then moving from GE to companies like Google or now WhatsApp, has that process changed, evolved? How has it evolved? The process for me is fairly similar. I think the way that it's evolved for me over time is the more senior I get in my career and either the larger the scope of the role or the projects or the teams, I take a lot more time in order to kind of ramp up because I think the magnitude of the decisions that you're making are much larger. And then what happens is like, rather than you focusing and trying to solve like four or five things all perfectly, the magnitude of you solving one or two things extremely well is way more impactful for the organization. And so I would take like a a good three months to kind of like ramp up, making sure that I'm meeting every single person that I need in order to kind of like move this process or this project forward and really putting my thoughts together before starting to kind of make recommendations and changes. So when you're leading an organization that has 30, 40, 100 people across different geographies, are you taking the time to meet with every single one of them? Are you doing that? I think it kind of depends. For example, I've had roles where I'm managing like 30 or 40 people and it's around leading the organization through a lot of change. I think a lot of the way that scaling works is basically you come in at a point where the organization needs to scale. And so it's really assessing the impact on kind of like people, process and technology. It's kind of how Mm -hmm. I think about it. So there are instances in which, yes, you know, I have met with every single person on the team to understand what are the pain points, what's kind of like the evolution been over the past, you know, X number of months or or like a year, and what is it that they're kind of missing in their view, so that everyone feels heard, and then everyone kind of shares their concerns and kind of their vision for what the team or for what this should become. So I think that's also important, because as a leader coming into an organization, you need to make sure that everyone feels included, everyone feels heard. And the reality is, your viewpoints will change over time. The more you talk to people, the more that you see these processes unfold. That is very important. Now on the flip side, right, if you're saying, you know, you come in and you're managing a team of like two or 300 people and it's a global team, you're not necessarily going to have the time or the resources to kind of meet with every single person. So what I do in that case is definitely make sure that I have enough of a subset that's representative of the whole in order to kind of do that. So I would meet with different people in every region. I would definitely travel to every region and kind of like meet Mm -hmm. with them. You can do a combination of instead of just going one-on-one, you can do like groups of like, you know, 10, 15, 20 people. And so I think, you know, there are things kind of there that you can do. I think the important thing is to make sure that you're meeting with enough people that are representative of kind of like the Mm. overall like work that you're representing. And you're getting that full picture of how do we do the job that we need to do and the pain points that you mentioned. Yeah, exactly. I I think that's key because uh, a lot of times there's this uh, tribal knowledge, Mm -hmm. if you will, that is hidden in some parts of the organization and it's not documented anywhere. You know, it's in some programmer's head or in some Mm -hmm. analyst spreadsheet. So you need to get to that person, whoever they are, and understand, okay, so how do you do your job again? Can you walk me through a week in the life, a month in the life? So... Switching gears, I noticed that you went from being in GE over to Google here yeah. in the Bay Area. What made you decide to do that transition between industries? 
So I was living in Los Angeles at the time. I had finished the GE rotational program and I was manager of strategy and operations at Universal Studios in the sound department. So we were developing products for anti-piracy. This is right around the time when Google started becoming much larger and like super hot, you know, and they started opening different campuses and kind of everyone was like starting to talk about Google. So, you know, it piqued my interest. And then I went online and honestly, I randomly applied for a job in strategy and operations at Google, which never (laughs) happens. Like every time I talk to someone, they're like, wait a minute, you randomly applied online. I'm like, yeah, I just submitted my resume and then they called me. And it's funny because, you know, it's a time where like everyone was using the search engine and there was a little uncertainty for someone who didn't live in the Bay Area and wasn't used to tech of like, what is tech? What what are these kind of like, at the time it wasn't a startup, but like this whole startup environment and technology, like it's a bubble that if you don't live in San Francisco, you actually are not exposed to it at all. And it's very difficult to explain. So yeah, I just, I kind of went through the interview process and, uh, you know, landed the job. And then that was the decision of, okay, you know, I was happy in Atlanta. I was happy at Universal Studios. It was just, hey, you know, let, let's try this, like the new frontier, this tech company and, and just learn something completely new and see how it kind of takes me in my career. So what did you do at Google? Google was really interesting. Like I, I went to Google at a time where they were going through their own scaling evolution internally. So I think they grew very quickly. And when I joined, they were right at like, I think around 20 to 25,000 people. And essentially, we were trying to centralize a lot of their technical support. So support wasn't necessarily just technical support as in a call center or on the phone, but it was advanced engineering support. There was also customer support on the phone. There was field operations kind of like in the field fixing things. So it was a lot of different types of support models across different regions, across different teams that Mm. supported tons of different products, like advertising products, publisher products, retail products. And so the team that I was hired on to, we basically first created one global operation called Google Technical Services in order to kind of like house all of these groups together. So that was a massive effort. And essentially what I did, um, what the part that I played in there was I ran communications for the entire kind of like reorganization for about a year. And also a piece of the reorganization. So that was great. And like the evolution of doing something at that magnitude took a couple years. So it was like year one was around like doing the reorg and then kind of like communicating it properly to everyone. Year two was around figuring out, okay, now we've done this reorg. What do we measure? What does success look like in each one of these organizations? And I got an amazing opportunity to basically like travel around the world. Like I I went to around 16 different Google offices And I lived in basically every region and worked with the directors of a lot of these organizations to figure out how do we scale, which for us meant how do we continue to grow without hiring, you know, crazy amounts of people every year. And it was through process improvement and automation. And so then year three was around, okay, now that we've figured out kind of like what we're measuring and and how we're kind of doing that, it was like purely focused on that latter piece, like the process improvement, the automation and the scaling. And so I saw the evolution of this over three years, which was amazing. Once I finished that rollout, I moved to the retail operations side. And this was a time where Android was, again, like Android was getting much larger than it was. And we were coming out with tons of new products other than just phones. It was like phones, laptops, wearables, routers, Nest, you know, so it was all of these different things. And essentially we were trying to get into into retail because I think in San Francisco also people are like, oh, we just buy everything on Amazon. Everything is just mailed to your house. But again, like it's still around like 80% of retail is, is still offline. 
Um, and so the reality is like we needed to be offline across the United States and then across the world in order to actually be successful in retail and get these products out there. And so I basically was part of the team that launched retail for Google inside of stores like Best Buy, Walmart, Target, Staples, Costco. Um, and we grew that team. And then I ended up heading up North America. So I had a team of around eight to 10 Googlers. And then we had a pool of around five to 600 vendors that we kind of like managed through this organization. And so I basically headed up this entire retail operation, which is like offline retail for North America. So that was a completely different type of job. And then that was kind of operations at scale for me and kind of like the beginning of really operating at, at that scaled level. So Leading a team of that size, that sounds like it's a humongous, it's a huge undertaking. I mean, I'm sure there's very delicate intricacies of not only getting the job done, but also motivating people and making sure that they know what they need to get done. And, yeah. you know, when things are not going well, I mean, you need to motivate them. You need to yeah. make sure that your team morale is well. I was wondering if you can share with me, what's your management style? In terms of like the morale and, and just kind of making sure that everyone's kind of happy, when you have a team of that size, I think there's a couple things that I think work very well for me as we were scaling that team. I think like one is communication and I think the second is collaboration. I think when we have a team of that size, you've got to figure out what are the proper communication and collaboration tools to keep everyone engaged so that they feel included. So I think one on like collaboration. So for this one at the time we used Google+. Again, this was like before Slack and before a couple other tools that are out there. But I think like the essence of a collaboration model is making people around the United States or around the world feel like they're on one team. And you can do that through some kind of like a social app or an interactive kind of application where people can post their pictures, their stories, their questions, and other people on the same team can answer them and they feel like one. I think it was also important to bring them together every now and then, at least probably once a year globally so that they can kind of bond and build that relationship together so that right. those things worked really well. And then the communication piece it was also about really constant communication all the way like from the leadership all the way down to that mm -hmm. level so that they also kind of feel included. So I think those were some of the things that we kind of made sure happen to keep everybody engaged. In terms of me and kind of like my management style with my direct reports, in general, what I do is, is I definitely like to make sure that early on we're setting everybody up for success. So the method that I use is kind of like what I learned at Google, which is like through OKRs. So it's like objectives and key results. So what I generally do is like at the beginning of the quarter, we set up clear goals and through OKRs and make sure that we're kind of aligned, right? So we're aligned based on the OKRs. And then on an ongoing basis, we do regular one-on-ones through these one-on-ones. Like my job is to kind of essentially provide whatever it is that they need. So it's either problem solving, thought leadership. They need to work through specific like communication things, roadblocks with cross-functional stakeholders. Like this is the type of conversation that we want to target in these one-on-ones and then just kind of see how we're progressing on the projects. So now assuming that that kind of stuff is in place. I'm very kind of hands-off in terms of the management style. I just kind of, you know, we've set expectations. And so I kind of like let them roll with the project. And for me, I assume that things are rolling fine until they can come to me for help. Or if I hear from like a key cross-functional stakeholder that something is kind of like going off track. And that's the only time where I kind of like step in and get involved. I really like the, the idea of the, I leave it at work too, the one-on-one. The yeah. -on -one. Yeah. For your manager, having that checkpoint and, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, one hour every week. Like in my case, I do half hour every two weeks and then just ad hoc whenever necessary, whenever something comes up. But I find that having that open line of communication makes a world of difference. I have this conversation with my, my manager. I had it like a year and a half ago when he hired me. 
good news are going to travel fast. Bad news are going to travel faster. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So if I text you, it's cool. If I call you, watch out. <laughs> yeah. So it's one of those things that setting that clear expectation. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's very important. So I'm, I'm glad that you do all those things, and especially at an enterprise like Google. I mean, everybody is expected to perform at this high level. So you have to make sure that setting up people for success is, you know, is paramount. I agree. And I think it's important, like even in these one-on-ones, like sometimes it's important to, to just get to know people on a personal level and also understand what else might be going on. Because sometimes I have one-on-ones with some of my direct reports and they just kind of need to vent about something or there's something mm-hmm. personal going on that they just kind of want to talk about. So I think it's important to keep those and make sure like we're keeping that consistent and really talking and getting to know the people because like, you know, life happens, shit happens. Like we all go through things every day. No one knows kind of like what's the baggage or what are the things that are going through your head when you get to work. So I think it's definitely important. So you have quite a few jumps here because you were working in the entertainment industry, if mm-hmm. you will. I know yeah. in operations, but entertainment industry. Yeah, totally. Jumped over to tech. And now you're doing this jump over to insurance. Yeah. Health insurance. Yeah. Like all things. <laughs> and again, I'm the kind of person that I think like my most dreaded item in my to-do list, <laughs> the one that keeps getting pushed over next week, next week, next week is doctor appointments and all that stuff. Like in my mind, there's nothing worse or like more painful to getting paid for a deductible or something like yeah. that or making doctor appointments. So what made you want to do that jump? over to Oscar Insurance. So after spending about five years at Google, what I ended up doing was, so I took some time off and then I just kind of like traveled around. I probably went to maybe like six or seven countries. Then I came back to the Bay Area and I kind of wanted to try something new. I wanted to work in the startup industry. I had gotten a flavor of what like tech is and what it is to kind of like scale an organization. And I wanted to do that for a startup. Then I started kind of looking around and I also wanted to try a new city and I wanted to kind of move out of San Francisco and just try a new city as well. So I looked around and found Oscar Insurance to essentially, it was backed by Google. It was backed by a bunch of reputable investors and they actually reached out to me for a different role. And, you know, I went on their website and I found this head of member services role and I thought, oh, actually like this is a job that fits my background. So I replied and and we kind of started conversations there. And what I liked about them was that it was a cool, hip, sexy refresh on what you know about healthcare. You know, their advertising was really catchy. The way that they packaged things like your membership cards and everything was like super, it was very like iPhone, like Apple, Mm, Apple-esque in terms of like these kind of things. The application that they have was like just clean and crisp in terms of like how they communicate the things that we dread most, which is like when you get the bills from your insurance company, when you get like the doctor's bills and it's like 30 pages and it says, this is not a bill. And you're like, well, if it's not a bill, then what is it? (laughs) Like, why do I get this? I think it's scary. I don't understand. And they just broke it down to plain English on an app. And you're just like, this is, this all makes sense. And it was, it was like really clean. And I thought, you know, let me, let me give this a shot. So I moved, I moved to New York and uh, I was managing the member services team there. And uh, yeah, it was a really, really interesting change for me. And I mean, in New York City, I mean, if you're going to move out out of the Bay Area, I mean, where else are you going to move? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I guess that you can do Austin. If you want to join these hipsters that want to buy houses and stuff like that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or New York City, I mean, you want to get that different flavor, but still be in tech, tech finance, all those things. So yeah, that's awesome. Talk to me a little bit about TaskRabbit. I mean, how do you get that? After I stayed at Austria for about a year, I essentially realized one, 
I missed San Francisco. <laughs> so um, the, the, I, I the thought, snow got to you. Did yeah. The, snow get, yeah. <laughs> the cold, it was just, I couldn't deal with the cold. I was kind of like, all right, I think I'm missing San Francisco and the weather and just kind of like, yeah, I mean, you have, you have the Lebanese Puerto Rican thing going on. So come on. totally <laughs> like, just like the, uh, the beach and, and, you know, I, there was a couple things that I kind of wanted, wanted, made me want to get back. Mm-hmm. Um, also just like tech in general. So like I got a flavor of being in a place where actually tech wasn't the hub, right? It's more insurance or, um, or finance. And so, you know, I got to expand my network, but I think given that I was still very much in tech, it was a different lifestyle and a different feeling working in tech in New York. And I missed the working in San Francisco tech aspect of it. So I wanted to move back to San Francisco. And then I kind of started also then just looking around again to see what startups I could get in in San Francisco that were even smaller than Oscar. Because now I had gotten flavor for kind of like the medium-sized tech startups. There was about 400-ish people when I joined, and I wanted to go somewhere even smaller. So I started looking at Series A, Series B, and had a bunch of different conversations. And then I realized there was a bunch of ex-Googlers that were kind of working at TaskRabbit that I kind of like read about in the news, and then basically interviewed at TaskRabbit, and I ended up managing global operations for them afterwards, and then moved back to the Bay Area. So what does it entail to, to manage global operations? What does that mean? Like, can you paint me a picture of the role, like a week in the life kind of thing? Essentially, it was a couple different things. So one was just your customer service operations. So there was a team, tier one and tier two agents that basically we did all the support. So anytime you had an issue with a task that you had ordered, you know, you would either write an email or chat or pick up the phone and mm-hmm. call. And that's the team that handled that. The second thing was we were standing up this data and analytics team. And so I oversaw that team to essentially report out high-level kind of like KPIs and create reports for the C-level execs. And so that was another team that we were basically, I stood up. And then the third piece was retail. And so this was kind of like back to what I was doing at Google, which was kind of doing that offline retail. And at the time, TaskRabbit was trying to essentially introduce assembly and delivery and installation services at Ikea. And so I managed a piece of the retail business as well. So that's kind of like what the role encompassed and, you know, help them kind of like scale that retail operation in London, because that's where Ikea was essentially headquartered, then technically headquartered in Sweden, but the major operations London, and then kind of, you know, help them uh, through the acquisition. Any stories from that time at uh, TaskRabbit that you can share? TaskRabbit was awesome. I spent several months in London. I got to actually go back to London, hadn't been there in a couple of years. That was super fun. And I lived there for three or four months while I was helping kind of like scale the relationship with Ikea. It was interesting going back into retail, which I love retail and I love working in, in retail with a startup from San Francisco, like TaskRabbit, that's very agile, very nimble, like it was used to moving super quick and then partnering with Ikea, which is, you know, a conglomerate kind of like global retail operation mm-hmm. that once you get to that size, you realize that in order to make one small change, it takes a really long time with communication to lots of different departments and stakeholders. And so there's a lot of red tape that you have to go through. So it was an interesting challenge kind of bringing that San Francisco kind of like tech background to then implement things like that in Ikea. But overall, it was an awesome experience. We basically, you know, we did it well. Ultimately, TaskRabbit ended up getting acquired by Ikea and I had a blast Mm -hmm. doing that. So overall, I think it was a success. But I think there it's like, you know, communication is key with an operation of that size. One of the things that I need to convince myself or put myself in the right mindset is the fact that, 
listen, just because we live in this bubble where it's okay to do two week sprints and OKRs yeah. and reinvent yourself every quarter. Yeah. You go to these businesses that have these ingrained cultures that is very, very top down, if you will. Yep. Okay, so you need to go through this uh, approval, then this another approval, another approval, mm -hmm. and then the CEO has to sign off on the things. And honestly, uh, I don't know if I could do it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I could adapt to it. I mean, I'm sure I could, but I, I know that it will be a bit painful. It's really interesting because like that was also some of the like the difficulty me switching from like GE to a Google, you know, it was kind of like GE was very top down. It's like a lot more of the managerial kind of like top level. And mm -hmm. there's not that many things that I felt when I was there were like very bottoms up. And then coming right. to a place like Google, it was very bottoms up, you know, like the organizations were a lot flatter. You know, everybody had a lot more say in kind of what was going on. They have the idea of kind of like the IC versus manager where it's like the individual contributor and you can still grow in your career and never be a manager and just kind of grow and, and stay as an individual contributor versus fighting to be a manager, even though you may or may not even want to be a manager. And in a right. lot of these other larger organizations, it's kind of like your path is just like a manager path. And so I think like the cultures are very different when you put these two types of companies together. Especially if you're brokering a deal, like an acquisition, yeah. you know, it's because... I mean, there's already some negotiation and some push and pull, if you will. But then also making decisions about, okay, you're going to acquire this piece. What else is going gonna, gonna to change? We're going to yeah. get the brand, all those things. And we made it to the part that I really wanted to make it to. WhatsApp. Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic tool. As any Latino will tell you, my family that lives in Spain, yeah. in Venezuela, in Florida, it's all in WhatsApp. I mean, I use it every day. And, and it's one of those things that, It's so ingrained in our way of life. I can't picture life without it now. So how do you get to WhatsApp? Uh, for me too, man. Like I think if you check my application usage, WhatsApp is definitely number one week over week. Like my wife lives in Lebanon and she's on her way to the States soon, but our main communication tool is WhatsApp. And like basically all my friends, I've got different groups for WhatsApp, my family globally, like all my friends globally. So I think for me, like WhatsApp has had a special place in my heart and will continue to have a special place in my heart, you know, for, for as long as I need to communicate with, <laughs> with all my friends and family. So over the last year, I essentially helped stand up this consulting practice with a couple of friends of mine. And given all the travel that I've done, um, I was handling a lot of international clients. So I got to spend some time in Thailand, in Sri Lanka, in China, in the Philippines, all working in uh, with companies that needed to either scale or develop either some kind of customer facing operations. So that to me was amazing. But after all the travel as well, I was kind of just ready to be back. I worked with a couple local clients here, but I missed that scale. I missed kind of like the scale of just like, operating at the level that I was operating at when I was at Google. Mm -hmm. So the reality is that Facebook kind of reached out and I was going you know, through some interviews there. And as I looked at the things that they had online, I found this job at WhatsApp and I said, hey, you know, I know I'm interviewing for this role over here, but there's this job at WhatsApp that I think fits my background and sounds awesome. And they were really receptive and super open to me talking to the team. And so I spoke to the team, went through the interview process and then kind of like the rest is history. So that's kind of how I started there. And the role at I'm head of markets for WhatsApp. And essentially, it's a team that's made up of folks that support all of these local markets. And so if you think of somewhere like Spain, we have a market specialist who has spent time in Spain, who essentially speaks the language, knows the culture, is a heavy user of WhatsApp. 
and can kind of like support this country and then the wider region through the rest of the folks that are on the team. And then we essentially do support. So anytime that people have issues with WhatsApp, you know, they'll email us and then we kind of like help them through there. And then we also develop a lot of deep market insights. And so in the markets, we basically figure out, hey, like we monitor social media, we monitor the tickets and the volumes coming in to help inform and improve the product and the product direction. But then also it's about monitoring social media and news and elections and and Mm -hmm. figuring out, you know, what can we do and how do we work with our cross-functional partners in WhatsApp to make the product and the experience for everybody better. So I'm really excited about the role. I've been there for about three months. I love the direction of the company. I love the product. And so I couldn't be happier in the new role. How big is your organization now? I mean, because you've been going from these uh, teams of five people, 10 people, 30 people. Like, Where are you at now? Right now, the team is mainly based in Menlo Park, and we are about 34 people, and we're expanding globally. You know, we're expanding to Dublin and, you know, probably other offices after that. And so I've got about seven positions open. So I would say by the end of the year, my group would probably be in the 40s. Well, hopefully I can send you some referrals your way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Let's do it. Some engineers that they're tired of coding and they want to move into ops. Yeah. (laughs) So if I'm a recent college grad Mm -hmm. or even like a like a senior in college yeah, or even like young professional that's starting out and I have a curiosity about working in ops, where's the opportunity for me to start a career in ops? Operations is very general. So like when someone says like, hey, I work in operations, like usually that doesn't mean much because there's a lot of different operations that you could work in. Like in technology, a lot of operations means customer support, customer mm-hmm. experience. In other industries, like operations could mean actually process improvement departments. There's a lot of like industrial engineers that go to companies like actually insurance and healthcare. They have a lot of like process improvement lean, but it could also mean finance. It could also mean sales operations, which is heavy on kind of like data and BI. So I think it depends on kind of like the interests of the person. For me, like there's a lot of different things that fall under the umbrella of operations. And it's about understanding the thought process that you learn by being an engineer is being very methodological and like having a process, setting it up and kind of like going through this. And so like the way that you think is like a mindset of being Mm -hmm. an engineer and you can apply that to a lot of different areas within operations. So that's kind of like I would say, I would say you have to find something that you're interested in and then, and then you know, whether it's finance, whether it's customer support, whether it's sales operations and kind of start from there and kind of try and grow your career in there, in that specific area. So you kind of have to pick one and specialize. Yeah, because I see a lot of people that, at least like in my case, you know, I have this uh, interest in data science mm-hmm. and then I look at my skills yeah. and the stuff that I've done. And then I find that more of the BI side of things, mm-hmm. more of like visualization, data visualization, yeah. business intelligence side of thing is a better match for me yeah. because I already have the skill set. Yeah. So it's easier to pivot. I would echo that. that look at, take a hard look at your skill set, take stock yeah. and then look at, what's open in an operation you like and send your resume to this guy he's hiring for them. <laughs> there's also like another thing too like that i keep in mind is like there's this thing about transferable skills when you come into an organization like they usually test you on things like critical thinking problem solving communication leadership and so you have the basis of what it is to succeed in the company and so the company knows that you have the ability to quickly pivot and learn new areas and so 
reach out to like managers, reach out to the hiring managers and talk to them about what you're interested in. Don't just say, oh, hey, like my background is in customer support, so I can never be in like marketing, you know what I mean? Or marketing operations or whatever it might be. Like there's a Mm -hmm. lot of sub functions in a lot of these teams that you might not know about or that we might not know about. And then we essentially lose out on opportunities to get you where you need to go. Like there's a path, for example, if you're trying to go from like customer support to being a data analyst, you know, and I've had people on my team do that transition. Well, like you speak up and then you have career conversations with your manager and like maybe like a BI team, right? And then mm-hmm. you start doing projects on the side and building that skill set in parallel with crushing your job. And then ultimately, right. you know, you can move into that area. So I think whether it's operations, whether it's something else, like use the tools and the people that you have around you to kind of help you get there. And I love the fact that you brought up that Facebook was interviewing you for job number one, and then you found job number two in WhatsApp, which is a Facebook company, and you spoke up and you said, yeah, I know you're reaching out for this job, but I think this one is a better match. I think I can add more value, you know, and keeping that conversation positive. Thank you for reaching out. I think that this aligns more with my career expectations and where I can add value to WhatsApp. Yeah, definitely. So so speaking up, speaking up, uh, because, you know, we're not mind readers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you're my manager and I have an interest in data science or product management or customer success, you need to know that. Yeah. You know, like, uh, hey, I know you hired me for this job and I'm going to kill it here. I'm going to crush it. By the way, I really want to get my MBA in the next three years. By the way, I really think uh, customer success is my path. So, so being open is also something that I... I recommend. And like one thing too is like, I didn't learn till later on in my career is that it's okay to say no as mm. well. So, you know, people would reach out to me, whether it's for projects or for jobs or for interviews or what, whatever it might be. And I would always say yes. So I think early on in my career, that actually was amazing. And that helped me a lot. And it helped me get to where I am today. Mm. But then the later that I got in my career, the more I realized that I sometimes would overwhelm myself, I would have either too many commitments, too much things to do, not enough free time, whatever it was, right? Mm. Even like with job interviews, if I was interviewing actively, I would get calls from, you know, like six companies when I knew that I wasn't interested in four of them, but I would take the calls anyway. And so I think it's also important to kind of like stay focused, and then it's okay to say no, because I also think like that's from my Latino side, right? Where it's like, you know, you don't say, <laughs> say like my mom is just like, say yes, say, you know, you, you go to these things, you always like yeah. do it. Yeah, you know? it's, like, it's like, mijo, it's, but it's Google. How yeah. are you going to say no to Google? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mijo, I use Google every day. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. You know? yeah. Where it was like with the Facebook thing, I was like, mom, I don't know, like if I want to do this. And she's like, what are you talking about? It's Facebook. You got to like, you know, <laughs> so think about those things too. So you can stay happy, you know? No, no definitely. You know, it's, it's about being happy, finding that balance and having that North Star. So in my case, you know, I have an interest in data science, but then the career path that I have in mind has more of a product management flavor. Mm-hmm. So guess what? If there's an opening for customer success, thank you. No, thank you. Yeah, You know, exactly. because is that going to help me become a product yeah. manager that I want to be? You know, it's narrowing your focus because yep. we only have 24 hours in the day. Yeah. And we need to focus our energy on the things that are going to get us closer to our goal. Now, Amir, this has been a lot of fun. Anything else that you'd like to add for 
this audience of young professionals and Latinos in technology? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would say that for Latinos too, honestly, like, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're a minority group and we're especially a minority group, like in within technology. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to kind of like to stay involved, you know, like when I was in college, I was a member of SHEP, Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers. And I also was at the professional level. And I think a lot of the companies, when you look at it today, they're trying to solve the problem of how do we get more minorities in tech and mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, uh, and develop programs around that. But the problem is deeper than that. The problem is that like we need to work with our communities and like the Hispanic and Latin communities and just get in there early on and work with with young kids and teach them about STEM and kind of get the word out there to solve the core of the problem, which is like there's just a lack of engineers, you know, and technologists mm-hmm. and, and, and scientists, you know. And so I think honestly staying involved in those things and giving back just kind of like how, you know, you kind of got when you were in college through whatever groups you joined with Latinos and uh, and any conferences you went through and all that stuff. I think it's super important to stay involved, stay engaged right. and kind of like honestly help really, really foster STEM. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. I think this is amazing, giving me an opportunity to kind of take a step back and think about my career and my track and kind of how I got to where I am today. So I definitely thank you a lot for that as well. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, You've been in a lot of places and you're truly an example of all the things you can do with an engineering degree. You know, it's not only coding. It's not only being trapped in a cube, looking at schematics. I mean, you can do these global things. So thank you for giving us some time and you're welcome here anytime that you feel like venting or you know, like, <laughs> like sharing your, your knowledge with us. So you're welcome here anytime. So thank nice, you so much. Nice. No, that's awesome, man. Muchísimas gracias. <laughs>